Welcome to All Shall Be Well, a conversation hosted by InterVarsity's women in the academy and professions, giving voice to women seeking to live fully into their God-given callings and be a redeeming influence, whether in the university or beyond. Thank you for joining us for All Shall Be Well, conversations with women in the academy and beyond. This is Caroline Trissick, and our guest for this episode is Rachel Denhollander. In January of 2018, while I was home from work with the flu, I stumbled across the live stream of victim impact statements taking place in Michigan's Ingham County Circuit Court. I'm not sure how long I tuned in, but I can vividly remember being especially inspired by Rachel's concluding statement, where she addressed both the judge and really the whole world, asking the question, what is a girl worth? Since that day, Rachel continues to boldly and unequivocally share her truth, as well as empower young girls and women all around the world, especially through her two new books, What is a Girl Worth and How Much is a Little Girl Worth? Through the privilege of being part of the launch team for her books, I was able to connect with Rachel and join her in conversation about finding healing from childhood sexual abuse, the work of pursuing justice, her experiences of forgiveness, and how we can create change in the church and culture. In addition to being an attorney, advocate, and educator, in 2018, Rachel was named one of Time Magazine's 100 Most Influential People in the World, as well as one of Glamour Magazine's Women of the Year. She also received the Inspiration of the Year Award from Sports Illustrated and was a joint recipient of ESPN's Arthur Ashe Courage Award. In addition to her advocacy work and all of these acclamations, Rachel and her husband Jacob live in Louisville, Kentucky, raising their four young children. Before we begin, please be aware that the interview addresses childhood sexual abuse and may be triggering to some listeners. Please take care of yourself as you listen. And for those of you who are not aware of Rachel's story, she was the first to publicly share about experiencing childhood sexual abuse committed by Larry Nasser under the guise of medical treatment for a gymnastics injury. Nasser was a doctor at Michigan State University who also served as a team doctor for USA Gymnastics. In 2016, Rachel offered her story to reporters from the Indy Star after she happened to read an article about abuse allegations within USA Gymnastics. Rachel's commitment to share her story publicly and her tenacious pursuit of justice led to 156 survivors sharing their victim impact statements at Larry's sentencing in January of 2018. We are so honored to have Rachel on the podcast to share more of her story with us. Well, let me begin by saying thank you, Rachel, so much for giving your time for this interview. For me, both personally and professionally, it is such an important conversation, and I know it is for many of our listeners as well. And I know many will know who you are, but with most of our listeners being women in academia, can you also share a little bit about yourself, including your educational background, and how that has influenced who you are today? Yeah, absolutely. Um, So I was uh, born and raised in Kalamazoo, Michigan, uh, and that's where both instances in Michigan is where both instances of my abuse occurred. Um, But from a very young age, uh, around 10 years old, I began articulating that I thought I really wanted to pursue law school. Uh, I just had a, I had a passion for justice. I had a passion for advocacy, which is a little funny because I was also a very shy, uh, a very shy child, but I just had that passion for justice and advocacy. And I said to my mom, you know, I I think I want to be able to do something 
where I can protect children and protect families. And so I was kind of thinking along those lines from a very young age, uh, and I took a few detours looking at considering public policy and uh, investigative journalism because I love to communicate. I love to communicate, especially through the written word. But God really directed me back uh, to to law school. And so uh, I actually got my paralegal certificate in my junior year of high school. Oh, wow. uh, and, yep. Uh, and that's, you know, one of the benefits of homeschooling is the ability to accelerate. Uh, and I'm very thankful for that. And then I worked in the state capitol for a while for state representative for my uh, junior and senior years of high school. Uh, and then I actually pursued my Juris Doctorate degree straight out of high school. There's a provision under California law that allows you uh, to actually test out of your undergraduate degree and fulfill other and fulfill a certain number of requirements. Uh, and so I tested out of my undergraduate degree uh, and I began law school right out of high school. And by the time I was 24, I was a member of the California Bar. Uh, and so it was just a fantastic uh, experience for me, and I'm very grateful for that. Uh, and looking back, I really see God's hand uh, just guiding me uh, through those decisions and the way that he has used uh, that education and the skills that I gained as a trained attorney uh, through everything that's transpired the last couple of years. Yeah, I imagine so. And also, can then you share a little bit about your spiritual and faith background? I was very blessed to be raised in a Christian home uh, with parents that really modeled uh, a sacrificial view of parental authority. Uh, yeah, they really held their parenting in balance, uh, understanding that they were also under God's authority and that they had limited jurisdiction to parental authority. Um, and so I grew up being raised uh, in a home that just modeled, uh, modeled repentance uh, when my parents made mistakes that modeled grace, uh, that modeled getting to the root of problems and really working through them instead of just treating surface symptoms. Um, and so I'm very grateful again for all of those things because as I look back uh, on just how my parents parented me and the values that they instilled in me and the way that they worked with me to shape who I was uh, and to not stifle the gifts, stubbornness being one of them, uh, <laughs> that God gave me, uh, but rather to, to direct them in a way that is healthy. Uh, again, I can just see his hand uh, so clearly in preparing me uh, just for the last couple of years and for whatever else is to come. It's interesting that you brought up parents modeling repentance. I was just reading a book by Andy Kolber. It's upcoming this January and about trauma and uh, attachment and how children who have parents who repair the relationship after there's wrongdoing have more resilience. So it's interesting that you brought even that up and that connection there. But anyway, you recently wrote What is a Girl Worth, which is your story of breaking the silence and exposing the truth about Larry Nasser and USA Gymnastics. Can you share what led you to writing it as well as the significance of the title? Yeah, I would love to. So, you know, honestly, for a little more than a year, I had people approaching me saying, you need to write a book, you need to write a book. And I kept saying, no, I'm not going to do that. I have, I have been public enough. I have let go of enough of my privacy. We're not going any further. I'm done. Mm. Um, but as I, um, as I continued just in, in my advocacy role and doing legislative work and walking alongside survivors, uh, it finally got to a place uh, where I felt that the good that could come out of this conversation would outweigh the difficulty of the writing process and just the difficulty of, uh, you know, putting so many personal details out there again. And so that was kind of the underlying motivation was just the ability to do good uh, with what I've been given. But someone else asked me one time, they said, what, what do you think is left? What's left to tell after the sentencing? Mm -hmm. And the honest answer to that is almost everything. Hmm. is left uh, because most of the world really tuned in at the sentencing hearing 
and they saw 156 women stand up and confront their abuser and give powerful impact statements. But by the time that happened, everybody knew who Larry was. And there was almost this sense of uh, his, his end was inevitable. But that's not actually the way it went. Uh, and so one of the things that I really wanted to, to lay out in the memoir is how we got there, kind of the story behind the story. Because how we got there is really where we, we learn all of those lessons. Uh, what led to Larry being able to prey upon children for so long, what it took uh, to take him down, what it took to fight two major institutions and multiple law enforcement agencies that had already botched investigations and cleared Larry, including the FBI, who was sitting on reports with Larry and instead of investigating him, was allowing him to continue abusing children and having drinks with the president of USAG and swapping job offers. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I really wanted to tell that story because one of the things I want people to understand uh, just in general is the decision-making and how we make decisions and confronting some of the questions that all of us have to confront. What am I worth? What is success? How do I make decisions? What's the framework through which I make my decisions? But I also want people to read my story and I want them to understand if it was that difficult for her as a white woman from middle class who's a trained attorney who has a supportive family, who had a detective who was passionate about the truth and a prosecutor who was committed to pursuing it. And it took all of this just to get there. Imagine what it's like for the survivor that doesn't have those things and to hear their voices coming through the story because those are the voices that we really need to hear. And I want people to see that. I want people to see the story behind the story and everything it took and the personal cost to doing this so that they can transmit that message onto other survivors and be their survivors' voices. And can you share then to the significance of the title? Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, that's, you know, the title of the book is What is a Girl Worth? Uh, and there's a children's book that goes along with that, How Much is a Little Girl Worth? And that was the defining question for me in choosing to come forward and speak so publicly uh, and in just not letting it go you know, doing everything I could do to push it forward. And that was the question that I asked every judge that I was in front of. Uh, By the time people tuned into the Ingham County sentencing and heard me ask that question, I had already been asking that question for every judge that Larry had been in front of for his sentencing for the child porn. And I asked it in Eaton County uh, when he was sentenced for the sexual assault crimes there. Uh, Because really, ultimately, what we do when we make a decision, we're faced with a difficult situation, is we take out a scale And on one side, we put things that we value. And on the other side, we put the consequences of our ideas. And we're weighing those things and we're deciding what we care about more, which one is worth more. And so when I had to come forward and I I made that decision to speak so publicly and so tenaciously and to not let it go and to take on a fight with these two major institutions, that's what I had to do. I had to look at what it was going to cost me personally and what it was going to cost my family Uh, and just the long-term consequences of relinquishing my privacy and my dignity and the financial cost and everything it was going to take. And on the other side were little girls who needed to be saved and women who needed to be set free and know the truth. And they were worth more than what it was going to cost. Mm. And can you share then a little bit about how you made that decision, how you discerned taking that risk? Yeah, it, was, it was what I had been waiting for 
for 16 years. Uh, at the time, I saw Larry when I was 15, and the abuse lasted uh, 15 and, and partly into my 16th year, almost to my 17th birthday, actually. Um, so almost two years. And right near the very end, uh, Larry did something that I knew was abuse. Up until that point in time, uh, I actually believed he was doing legitimate medical treatment. Uh, and the reason that I believed that was because I had friends who were physical therapists who practiced legitimate internal pelvic floor therapy. And my mom had a friend who had some birth injuries, and she had had legitimate internal pelvic floor therapy done to work on some of her birth injuries. So I knew there was a category for this. And I assumed that's what Larry was doing. I, I knew he needed special training for this. I knew he needed to be certified to do internal pelvic floor therapy. Uh, and so my presumption was he must have that training. He must have that certification because there's no way that others haven't described, that other children haven't described to somebody what Larry's doing. And if there was any question about the legitimacy of Larry's pelvic floor work, surely somebody would ask those questions. And so since Larry was being allowed to treat girls doing this pelvic floor therapy every day, I was confident that he must be a certified pelvic floor therapist. That must be what was going on. Uh, and right near the very end uh, of the visit, he did something that I knew was sexual assault. Uh, and that started me, of course, asking the question, is it possible there's more? Is there more that I have missed? And when I finally disclosed to my mom about a year later, uh, we had that conversation again. And at that time, uh, we really didn't know. I knew Larry had groped me, uh, and, and that was a third class, that was a third degree sexual assault under Michigan law. But I didn't know what else was part of that picture. And so my mom and I had the conversation what do we do with this information? Mm -hmm. And at 17, uh, I said to her, I can't do this anonymously and I can't do this without media pressure because as I started to realize who Larry must be and the possibility that the abuse was so much worse than I had realized, my point of view shifted from clearly he must be doing something legitimate to understanding somebody's been covering for him mm -hmm. because by that point, I had seen enough of sexual abuse. I had understood enough of the culture and the social dynamics and what it takes to unseat a predator that I knew predators don't only have just one victim. And I was confident based on Larry's behavior that I was not his first and that this is something he did very regularly. And he had been doing this regularly for years. And that can only mean one thing. But all it means is that the women who are speaking up are being silenced. And I said, I've got to be able to do something to get outside of that. You have to be able to do something to wrest control from these organizations from Michigan State University and United States of America Gymnastics and the United States Olympic Committee. Something has to take this out of their control so that they can't silence the victims anymore. This has to be done with media coverage. Mm -hmm. And I just didn't know how to do that. And my mom didn't know how to do that. You know, we, we talked about, we actually had a conversation. What, you know, do we walk into a news station and say, like, you know, hey, I have a story for you? Right. But at that point, I was a trained paralegal and I understood journalism didn't work that way. You know, you don't walk into a news station and say, hey, I have a story and they pick it up and run it the next day. That's not how it works. You know, there are very specific legal hurdles you have to overcome to be able to make an allegation like that publicly. And I didn't know how to get there at 17, 18 years old. I didn't know how to do that. So for the next 16 years, what I really watched for was a chance to make that happen. Mm. Uh, my mom and I gathered my medical records and we started amassing a file. Uh, we talked to a couple of pelvic floor therapists to just start kind of tiptoeing around trying to understand what pelvic floor therapy should look like. And I didn't like the answers that we were getting. Yeah. And so I just started compiling evidence 
You know, I watched the Statue of Limitations. I watched Larry's career. I watched uh, USAG and MSU. And I just looked mm-hmm. for a crack, just any chance to be believed. And I didn't see it until that Indie Star article. But when that Indie Star article came out uh, on August 16th or August 12th, when it came out in August, what that journalism team had done in unveiling the dark underbelly of the sport, it was clear to me they understood the dynamics of abuse. They understood how corrupt that culture was, and they were taking it seriously. They saw why it mattered. They had poured time and effort into it. Uh, and as I, when I finished reading that article, my first thought was, this is it. This is what I've been waiting for. And I immediately sent them an email and told them what had happened and that I had my medical records and here's what I could give them and that I would go forward as publicly as necessary if they could just make the truth get out. And it's remarkable that it's only been three years since you wrote that email. And in the book, you walk us, the reader, through kind of what was going on for you as you worked up the email and then pushed send. And so much has happened in three years, and yet three years is also such a short time. Can you share more about that decision that you made to hit send? It was one of those things where I honestly didn't feel like I had a choice. Mm. I I had spent 16 years off and on preparing for that and thinking through, what is this going to have to look like? How is it going to have to be done? How do you reach other survivors? How do I make Larry have to answer things publicly in a way that it's going to be clear his story isn't lining up? How do I bring a case to a detective that's going to make a detective take this seriously? And so I had already been thinking through those dynamics and planning for that moment, should it ever arise, for years. And I'm very grateful for that. But at the same time, you know, when you, when you do have a chance, when you finally have a chance, to do the right thing and to stop someone who's doing so much damage. I don't think you really have a choice. At least Mm. I didn't feel like I had a choice. It needed to be done. I knew that was how it had to be done. Therefore I did it. And as you mentioned before, I mean, obviously you had the ideal outcome, but there was so much that had to happen. And like you said, you have a law degree, you have an understanding of Mm -hmm. how the system works. You're a white woman. There's so many other people out there, other survivors in all sorts of places that maybe won't even have an opportunity to send an email to someone. So it's remarkable just your choosing to take that risk, sort of all the dominoes that fell to pursue justice. It is incredible to me to see how those pieces lined up. But I, I think you made a really good point. Uh, that not everybody has those things. And that's something I think needs to be stressed uh, because societally we put a lot of pressure on survivors. You need Mm -hmm. to report, you need to report, you need to report. I think the bigger emphasis needs to be on creating a culture where they're safe to report, where they have hope that their report is going to be taken seriously. Because right now, by and large, we don't have that. And that's the honest truth. Very few survivors have real good family support. Even fewer have any a sense of community support, you know, and I was, of course, um, you know, the, the treatment from the gymnastics community and from the communities just surrounding Larry was very vitriolic as soon as I came forward, but I had close friends who stood by us, you know, and we did suffer betrayal from our church community, not over my abuse specifically, but over my advocacy for sexual assault survivors. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was incredibly painful, but they weren't our only community. And I had a detective who was passionate and I had a prosecutor who came in, you know, and fought for us and a police chief who fought for us. And everything that had to go right to get us where we were is something people really need to understand how many times that case almost got derailed. Even with everything I did, people need to understand 
because the emphasis really shouldn't be on requiring survivors to report so much mm-hmm. as it should be on making it possible for them to report. Mm-hmm. Right. And I just appreciate what you said about having it be a safe place to report. And related in the church across all denominations, and you're part of the SBC or you were, and I'm part of the Roman Catholic Church out here in Pennsylvania. And we, in general, have not, the church has not responded well mm-hmm. to survivors, as you mentioned, just vitriolic and ostracism and all sorts of things. And yet many of our listeners would like to be part of changing that culture. What suggestions would you offer on how to advocate for change within the church? Yeah, absolutely. I think that is just an absolutely critical question that we have to confront. I think the very first thing is becoming educated so that you can advocate well, understanding the dynamics of abuse, understanding uh, victim responses and the damage that's done, understanding answers to the questions like, why don't victims speak up? Why didn't you report? You know, and some of those key questions are questions that I really wanted to answer in my book to take people inside the mind of a survivor at the time the abuse is happening and during the aftermath of the abuse. And while you're considering what to do about it, you know, and help them understand, help people understand what's really going on uh, and become educated on those things. Because a lot of times people who do damage aren't being malicious. They just Mm -hmm. don't know what to do and they make very serious errors. And so I think that's the very first step is getting educated on some of those basic dynamics. Uh, And then I think the next step is looking at specific dynamics within a community. You know, each community that insulates a survivor has a specific flavor to it, if you will. Mm -hmm. Uh, Over here in the evangelical realm, we certainly have aspects of, you know, being afraid of liability and losing money uh, and losing reputation. We have those dynamics just like any university or secular organization does. But we also have an added layer in conservative evangelicalism of misunderstood theology and imbalance in uh, how we view uh, forgiveness and justice, a misunderstanding of what forgiveness means, an imbalance oftentimes in how we view church authority uh, and in how we define terms like divisiveness and unity. And we wield all of those theologies incorrectly in a way that silences survivors and leaves abusers in power. The Catholic Church has some of those theological dynamics as well. You know, in the political sphere, we have money and we have power, but we also have political objectives. Uh, You know, and what very often happens when there's a politician or a leader who is accused of something very serious is that we're very happy to use that as a convenient whipping post for the quote-unquote other side. But when it's our own candidate, we have a motivation to not want it to be true because Mm -hmm say we have a Supreme Court justice nomination on the line, or we have a legislative package that we really want to see pushed, or we have these other issues that are good issues to fight on, you know, but we, we value those as more important than the truth. And we allow those things to overshadow our ability to see the truth and to treat these things like it matters. You know, and so I think the second layer to becoming educated is understanding the motivations in each community that we're a part of for why we don't handle abuse disclosure as well, and being on guard for those things and starting to have those conversations, you know, in, uh, in the church capacity, taking a hard look at our theological understanding uh, of the issues that surround abuse and start having those conversations. How do we define forgiveness properly? How do we understand the correlation of justice and forgiveness? What are the limits to church authority? How do we understand unity and divisiveness uh, and having those hard discussions? And then beyond that, be willing to sacrifice for the truth. You know, all of us have our own sphere of influence, whether that is uh, the break room 
uh, or the teachers union or our physical church, our physical community, our family, our social media community, we all have spheres of influence. And how we talk about these things really does shape the tone of the culture. Uh, you know, it really does influence how people think about them. And more than anything, it sends a message to survivors. Survivors are always watching what's going on around them and they're asking the question, am I safe? And so when we talk about abuse issues in a way that denigrates the survivors who come forward, in a way that immediately attacks survivors who speak up as having political motivations or being in it for money or being in it for fame, uh, rather than taking those allegations seriously and understanding what evidence looks like, survivors look at those discussions and they know that's what they would really think about me. That's how much they really understand dynamics of abuse. I'm not safe to speak up. And so we have to be very, very careful just how we talk about these issues and how we communicate on them is one of the most powerful things that will shape the culture and the tone of our society. Right. And I'm glad you brought up forgiveness. It certainly is complicated in the way it can be and has been wielded as a weapon against survivors. Also, though, in your impact statement, you directly stated to Larry that you had forgiven him and Mm -hmm. have forgiven him. Can you say more about what forgiveness means for you personally? Yeah, I think theologically, you know, and I I fall back on theology um, because, you know, forgiveness is a philosophical and theological concept. Uh, And so we have to be able to discuss our theology and our worldview to properly understand uh, what forgiveness and justice mean. Uh, And if you look at how we understand forgiveness and how scripture defines forgiveness, how our theology defines forgiveness, it is a relinquishment of a desire for vengeance. Uh, It is a releasing of bitterness and unrighteous anger. Uh, And it is an extending of mercy and grace to the person who has done the wrong. Now, whether or not that extending is accepted, you know, that obviously that it's a transaction uh, and and the transaction is not always completed because there may not be repentance and a desire for forgiveness on that other side. Uh, But I think the most important thing to understand about forgiveness is that both philosophically and theologically, it is personal to you. It has to do with your heart attitude towards the perpetrator and towards injustice. In a Christian framework, uh, it rests on knowing that it is God who brings justice and that justice will be done either through the atonement or through uh, eternal punishment. And that allows you to forgive, knowing that forgiveness does not minimize or mitigate uh, the depth of the damage that was done to you and the wrong that was done to you. What forgiveness does not do is cancel out justice. It does not erase the consequences. And so one of the things I think is most important in that victim impact statement that many people want to skip over, particularly particularly the evangelical Christians, to be perfectly honest, uh, is that I was advocating both for full justice and for forgiveness. Mm-hmm. Now, I had dedicated the last two years of my life at great personal cost to pursuing justice in its fullest extent, because that's what Larry's crimes needed. That's, that's what was right And sacrificing justice through a misunderstanding of forgiveness, what that really does is it minimizes evil. And it minimizes the contrast between goodness and evil when we act like forgiveness cancels out that debt. And so, yes, I do extend forgiveness to Larry. I pray for his salvation. But I also stood before the judge that day and asked her to impose the fullest penalty because that's also in accordance with what is right. Yeah, justice, again, theologically and philosophically, it is a comparing of something to a standard. 
I think C.S. Lewis put it beautifully when he talked about the crooked line and the straight line in his book, Mere Christianity. And he said, my argument against God was that the world, the universe was so cruel and unjust. But where had I got this idea of just and unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he first has some idea of straight. And so we see even there that justice is measuring something against a firm immovable standard, against a straight line. And when we pretend like that straight line doesn't exist or isn't important or is a little bit crooked, what we've really done is diminish the crookedness and the evil that we're seeing and destroys the contrast that goodness and evil have. It destroys the glory of God. It it destroys uh, the hope of the redemption and the beauty of final redemption where all, all evil things are wiped away. And so I think we need to be very careful to hold those concepts of justice and forgiveness correctly from a theological and a philosophical perspective. And we need to hold them in tension because we teach them sometimes as if they're dichotomous and they're not. Mm. Thank you. That's really helpful. I especially appreciate the idea that they're not fighting against one another, but they're in tandem and that we can pursue forgiveness as well as pursuing justice. And you write in your book about some of the process toward healing. And if I'm reading, understanding correctly, that much of it was during the time you were pursuing your law degree. Mm -hmm. So two questions related to that. What have been some of the ways you have found healing and what recommendations could you offer women in academia on how to pursue their own healing, whether it's from childhood sexual abuse or some other grief or trauma? Yeah, absolutely. I think part of what was really key for me uh, was being able to speak the truth about what had happened, um, to not feel societal pressure to minimize uh, or to mitigate it, the ability to recognize there there is real damage here, uh, and it's not because I'm being overdramatic or I'm being weak. It's because it's a real injury. Mm. Uh, it's real trauma. It's a real wound, uh, and there are consequences to what was done. Yeah, And being able to face that head on and acknowledge it uh, without the societal pressure to minimize or to mitigate or to excuse uh, or to blame myself, not just for the abuse, but for not being able to heal from it was really key. And in part of that, of course, was, you know, was my faith uh, and holding on to that quote by C.S. Lewis, you know, recognizing that there is a crooked and a straight and I can, I can name the crooked and I can call it what it is because it really does exist. But I know that it really exists because the straight line also exists. And so I can grieve the evil and I can grieve that which is crooked and broken and acknowledge it and not feel pressure to minimize it. Uh, and I can do that without blaming myself for it. But I can also remember that the crooked points back to the straight. And wherever there is goodness, there is hope. Um, you know, and it's, it's not a 12-step process. Uh, I think that's something that survivors uh, need to be told over and over again because even societally, we put a great deal of pressure on survivors uh, to become like they were before they were abused. And that's not what healing means. Uh, healing doesn't mean that there aren't scars uh, and it's not part of your story anymore. I think a better definition of healing is that you know what to do uh, with the pain when it comes. You know how to grieve in ways that are not destructive uh, and it becomes integrated as part of your story and part of who you are uh, rather than something that you try to sequester off. So speaking the truth was very critical for me, you know, and I wasn't speaking it publicly for a long time. So I chose to journal. You know, I think a good counselor is excellent. Uh, I refused to go to counseling because I'm stubborn like that. Uh, so I journaled. <laughs> uh, I don't recommend people follow my, uh, my stubborn <laughs> approach, but that is the reality. Uh, I, I chose to speak first through journaling 
Uh, and that was a good way to just begin getting my thoughts out uh, and being able to put words to what had happened. Finding safe people to disclose to who can walk with you through that journey, uh, but also recognizing that you don't owe anyone your story and that it isn't a sign of great healing uh, to necessarily speak freely. Uh, you know, some people heal very well and desire to be public with their story. Other people heal very well and still desire to keep it close. It's not a right, wrong decision. Uh, so even not feeling pressure to share your story unless it is advantageous to your healing uh, and you feel safe, finding a safe community to disclose to. And that might be a very narrow circle and that's all right. And a lot of it uh, really is just reminding myself of the truth over and over again uh, and clinging to that even when I don't feel like it. Yeah. And I appreciate you affirming and validating that not everyone has to go public, especially during, was it 2017 when the Me Too movement mm -hmm. sort of became viral? It felt like there was pressure for anyone who was a survivor to have to share their story and to have permission from someone who has gone very public to say it's not for everyone. It's not a requirement for healing is helpful, I think, for so many people. I think that's important that it really is an individual path. And related to that idea of going public or just being vulnerable in conversation with someone, there was one particular line that stood out to me as I was reading your book where you were writing about an experience you had. I think you were teaching law in the summer to high school students and you were feeling particularly vulnerable in a conversation with a male colleague about Michael Jackson. Mm -hmm. um, and you wrote, I responded as nonchalantly as I could and I was honestly grateful he'd asked, but now I felt even more fearful. I hadn't masked my emotions well enough to hide my discomfort. I'd left myself vulnerable, exposed. The one thing Larry never had access to was my mind, and I was determined to protect it. I needed to appear calm, cool, and professional. And that line, the one thing Larry never had access to was my mind, resonated with me as I've often thought about that balance between self-protection and vulnerability. Mm -hmm. especially considering academia and professional roles, what thoughts would you offer to women who are wrestling with that balance between sharing a little bit about who they are? I mean, maybe not sharing their deepest traumas, but that balance between self-protection and vulnerability. You know, I think it really has to do with the context and what you're hoping to accomplish and the community that you're speaking into. You know, there are Part, you know, part of the purpose, for example, of close friendships is that you have someone who can walk alongside you in these burdens. You have someone that can watch for imbalance in your healing journey, uh, that can watch for even some of the warning signs, say, of substance abuse or depression or uh, you know, the, the mental health issues that survivors struggle with. Because sometimes it takes someone from the outside to come alongside and say, hey, can we talk about this? I have some concerns. Can I walk with you here? But that's best done in a very tight, close circle. Uh, and so you have more vulnerability in that close circle because you need more vulnerability to have the kind of community that's necessary to walk through the healing journey. Uh, and all of us need that kind of community, regardless of our background, regardless of what we've been through. Uh, but as that circle widens, uh, I think that's where you start to see, you know, there's less vulnerability in the next circle and less in the next circle and less in the next circle, unless it serves a specific purpose that you're committed to and passionate about. Um, you know, obviously my circle at this point in time, in some respects, has gotten very large uh, because mm -hmm. what happened to me became an international news story. But that wasn't how I would have chosen to do it. That was what needed to be done. There was a purpose to relinquishing that vulnerability. And yet at the same time, the level that I share 
is still at a, you know, at a very more personal level is still quite small. And so I think that, I think a good question uh, to ask is what is the purpose of the vulnerability? Hmm. Am I being vulnerable with a safe community because I need that community to walk alongside me and I need them to know what I'm going through so that they can help me grow? Uh, am I being vulnerable because there's an end goal that needs to be accomplished through my vulnerability? Uh, but looking at what the purpose of that vulnerability is, uh, because I do think in today's culture, we can feel a lot of pressure to be vulnerable. Being vulnerable is almost held up as this quintessential moral characteristic, uh, if you will. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and it, it is an important part of coming alongside each other and drawing attention uh, to issues that people often want to keep silent. But it's not for everybody and it's not for every context. And so it has helped me to ask the question, what's that purpose for? What is the purpose of vulnerability for? And that helps guide a little bit how much vulnerability I have in each circle in my life. Thank you. Yeah, that's very wise. I appreciate having that question to sort of hold up for those moments where you're making the decision. Do I share something here? The question of what is the purpose of being vulnerable? So in the dedication of the book, What is a Girl Worth? You write, For every survivor from every background and identity, those who came before, those yet to come, and those who are no longer with us, it is not your fault. It is not your shame. You are believed. May you know how much you are worth. And these words are so simple, but also so powerful and important for survivors to hear. Do you have any other thoughts on what to say when or if someone discloses that they have been abused? I think two of the most important things to do and they really go hand in hand, is to grieve with the survivor, to be present in the grief as much as is necessary. And grieving is a long, continual process. You know, there are ups and downs and ebbs and flows. Um, But to be able to just sit in pain with the survivor and to grieve the loss and the damage because it's real. And also to understand the lies that are spoken into a survivor's heart during abuse and in everything that happens after the abuse, and to be able to speak the truth into those lies over and over and over again. Uh, You know, one of the most powerful things my husband continually did for me throughout, you know, from from the time he first knew, is just to say, it's not your fault. Mm -hmm. This is not your shame. This is not your identity. Uh, You know, and he spoke, he understood the damage, and he spoke truth into the damage into the lies that filled my heart for so long. And even though I had reached a very good place of healing before we even met, I still needed that. And I think that's important for people to understand. Survivors need to hear the truth over and over and over again. They need to know that you know the truth, that it's not their fault, that they're not going to be battling the people closest to them just just to hang on to what's real. So I think sitting in grief being able to grieve together and walk in the grief uh, because it's legitimate and being able to speak truth to the lies are two of the most important things we can do for the survivors. Thank you. Along with speaking truth in some scenarios. So for example, if some of our people in our audience or some of the listeners might be professors or faculty at the university guiding someone to pursue justice, right? Going forward to title nine, do you have any thoughts for those particular contexts? Yeah, I think I think there are a couple of things to be aware of, um, and it, it's very similar to the dynamics that you have to consider when reporting to the police. Um, I think it's important for the professors to, by and large, be aware that most systems are very broken in how they handle these complaints, uh, that the survivor is going to be left uh, without an advocate, 
in an adversarial situation in a system that is by and large broken. And so that does not mean don't report, but it means that you need to make sure that survivor is surrounded with good support when that report is made. Uh, ideally, that there's someone that can go with them to make the report unless they don't want that, truly don't want that. Uh, make sure that counseling is lined up, psychological care if necessary is lined up, that they have a close inner circle who is going to be aware of what's going on, who can walk with them through the process to explore the idea of getting legal representation uh, because many Title IX proceedings are very adversarial. It is not unusual for the person who's accused uh, to hire an attorney to help with those proceedings and the survivor is left completely at the mercy of the process and defense counsel. Uh, so understanding what the process looks like, how broken it is, and what's going to be necessary for that survivor to be able to survive, literally survive the process of reporting and to ensure the best outcome possible uh, is very important. Uh, and to connect the survivor with those resources right away from the beginning. You know, I understand professors balance an incredible amount uh, with the, the multiple classes they frequently teach and the number of students they teach. But in the, in the vein that they're able to, to check back in, with that survivor to make sure they're going to counseling, to ask how things are going, uh, to help them think through some of those steps. Because as you're going through it, uh, sometimes you're not even able to understand what you need. It takes someone who's outside of the situation, who's not undergoing the trauma, to help put together an action plan and action steps. And so I think a, a relatively in-depth understanding is honestly quite important. Uh, and then for those members who are, for those faculty members who are part of a university, do your part to make sure the university is doing things as well as possible. Be willing to consider that sometimes mistakes are made uh, and to advocate if those mistakes are made. You know, most often it is the people closest to the community that have the ability to do the most good. And yet it is the people closest to the community that are the least likely to be willing to see errors. Mm. Uh, and I think we need to hold that in balance and intention and, and understand that our ability to do good is great, but our ability to inadvertently become part of a cover-up is also quite great, and to be on guard for that. Yeah, thank you for that advice. So totally shifting gears then, along with What is a Girl Worth? You also wrote the children's book, which you mentioned earlier, How Much is a Little Girl Worth? And when I shared the book's title with my seven-year-old daughter, she immediately responded, priceless, without me even prompting her <laughs> to answer the question. And of course, I was glad to hear that she finds value in herself already yes. at such a young age. Um, and I appreciate so much that you wrote this book to help cultivate value and self-worth and courage for little girls all over the world, including my daughter. And I'm curious, as a parent, but also for our listeners who aren't parents but have young women in their lives or young boys too, right? How do you cultivate value and courage in your children, especially your daughters? I think having those discussions from a very early age is absolutely critical, but tying it to something concrete. Uh, you know, oftentimes our daughters and our sons too, uh, because both genders have this, uh, this struggle is, you know, finding not just what we're worth, but why we are worth something. Yeah, and the message that we so often get from society uh, is that you are worth something because of your physical appearance or your sex appeal or the accomplishments that you have, you know, your academics or your professional career. And even as adults, if we're honest, uh, we really can slip into that to finding our value in something that we have accomplished rather than who we intrinsically are. Uh, and the reality is that if our value is in something that we accomplish, 
uh, or how good we are on a sliding scale at what we're doing, it is a recipe for disaster mm. because there will come times when we make mistakes. Uh, my parents used, and my parents used to tell me, there's always going to be somebody that you're better than and that doesn't make you more valuable. And there's always going to be somebody that's better than you and that doesn't make you less valuable. What you need to focus on is who you are and where your value comes from. And so I tell my children that, you know, we talk about that all the time, you know, where their, where their value comes from and where it's found and that their value isn't found in things that they do or they accomplish. And I think all of those things, having those conversations are important, but helping our children tie their value to their intrinsic worth and not to something that they have done or some external characteristic is absolutely integral. Those are wise words. And similarly, you have displayed so much courage to the world in speaking up and pursuing justice. How do you cultivate courage in yourself? You know, um, I think think some of it really comes from having excellent examples uh, that I grew up with. But the, the biggest motivation that I really have is just the idea of faithfulness, being faithful with what I've been given. I think it's critical. It's been critical for me uh, to define success not by a particular end goal, uh, because if success was imprisoning Larry or getting justice or stopping child abuse, and I didn't reach that goal, and I had tied my value and my worth and my identity to that particular goal, and I didn't get it, the result would have been crushing. Uh, And so, really, to even have the ability uh, to speak up and to withstand everything that came with speaking so publicly, I had to know uh, that my identity and worth wasn't tied to the result that I received, but was rather uh, tied to, was rather, you know, a product of faithfulness. Uh, And so my approach to each day is just be faithful with what you're given. And sometimes that is cuddling babies to sleep and teaching a four-year-old to read uh, and doing math with my eight-year-old. And sometimes that is speaking on a national platform. And you just be faithful with what you are given. Uh, and you ask the question, what is the right thing to do? You know, and you know, I'm, I'm not going to deny that the answers to those que- that question can sometimes be complex. But it's not usually nearly as complex as we make it. Not really. Uh, not if we strip it down to that balancing scale and we look at, okay, what are the interests that I'm balancing against each other? Uh, because on one side is going to be people. And on the other side is going to be something else reputation, money, comfort, uh, you know, legal liability, whatever the case may be. But on one side, there's always going to be people. And people are always worth more than -hmm. things like money and legal liability. And so simplifying that question of what is the right thing to do, stripping away all the nice excuses and the flowery verbiage and getting down to what am I really balancing against each other, I think is one of the most important things to do. Because more often than not, the answer to what is right is not nearly as complex as we make it out to be. Yeah, and again, you have those questions that you ask yourself in decision Mm -hmm. making, and I love it. Well, finally, we like to conclude the podcast with the same question to all of our guests. Is there a particular quote, scripture, song, or other set of words that have been meaningful to you lately? And could you share why it resonates with you at this time? Oh, goodness. Um, there's so many. I'm trying to think. I really love Psalm 34. I have always loved Psalm 34. It really does a beautiful job uh, showing God's care and compassion for his creation 
but there's a particular section in there uh, and it says they look to him and they are radiant. Their faces are never covered with shame. And that has just been such a powerful reminder to me, regardless of what I'm struggling through, uh, that when I am looking to the source of goodness and holiness and truth, and I am pursuing that, I have no reason to be ashamed. Uh, Not if I get a failing grade, uh, not if I have to release personal details that nobody was ever supposed to know, not if I feel like I haven't been successful. I have no reason to feel shame if I am looking to Christ. Thank you. That's an encouraging scripture to end on. Thank you again, Rachel. We so appreciate your time and just offering your voice for this interview, but just offering your voice to the world in pursuit of justice and just as a model of what is good and right in the world. So thank you so much. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us for this episode of All Shall Be Well, Conversations with Women in the Academy and Beyond. This is Caroline Trisick, and information about our guests can be found on our podcast page at thewell.intervarsity.org slash podcasts. This has been a production of Women in the Academy and Professions, a focused ministry initiative of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship USA. We value the contribution of podcast guests who are not employed by InterVarsity, and we acknowledge that the opinions of our guests may or may not represent the ministry, doctrine, or policies of InterVarsity. Thank you for joining our conversation as we engage in faith and life together. We'd love to hear your feedback. To share your thoughts or to learn more about who we are or the resources and connections we provide, we invite you to visit us at our online gathering place, The Well. You can find us at thewell.intervarsity.org.